Welcome to The Investigation. I'm John Santucci, senior editorial producer here in Washington for ABC News. Chris Vlasto has the morning off, and we are gearing up for what else is new? Another busy week here in Washington. But December is kicking off with a new committee taking center stage up on Capitol Hill. That is the House Judiciary Committee set to begin their first impeachment hearings later this week. Let's bring in the team here to break this down. I'm joined by my colleague, White House and Capitol Hill reporter Catherine Falders and senior national correspondent Terry Moran. So Catherine, literally as we're coming into the room to talk about this week, you just happened to send, oh, I don't know, a five-page email here breaking down what the week has. As if you knew we had to talk about this, Catherine. Your timing couldn't have been more perfect. So we do have a busy week coming up here. We do. So yesterday, uh, members of the House Intelligence Committee uh, began viewing uh, Schiff's impeachment report behind closed doors. And, And later today, in the evening on Tuesday, At 6 p.m., they're going to take a vote on Schiff's report from the House Intelligence Committee, uh, which will essentially, it's a formality in a way, it will will vote that report out of the committee, and then it will essentially shift the impeachment inquiry over to the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, So that's what we've seen uh, the first two days of this week, and then Wednesday uh, will be the first hearing in the House Judiciary Committee, uh, which will essentially be this hearing with uh, constitutional and legal scholars, essentially analyzing uh, this notion that the president committed these high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, uh, we will probably see a lot of theatrics from uh, both sides of the aisle here, Democrats and Republicans. Republicans are uh, upset uh, that they won't have enough time to review Schiff's report, not enough time to prepare. But remember what we've heard from Republicans in the White House, you and I both know, for the past month, really, is how this is an impeachment hoax. These hearings aren't fair to them. The White House counsel and the president uh, can't participate in these. Well, the Judiciary Committee, uh, under their rules, gave the White House the opportunity to participate. They've said, uh, no, we're not going to show up. We're not going to come. The other deadline we face, John, is a Friday deadline at 5 p.m., where uh, the White House has to tell uh, Chairman Nadler, a, a deadline imposed by Chairman Nadler, whether they plan to participate in any of these proceedings at all. So I think The committee is moving pretty fast here. Nadler has indicated that he's ready if the White House wants to present a defense of the president, that he's ready to hear that defense uh, by next week, by December 9th, and then perhaps the following week refer these articles of impeachment if they decide to draft them uh, to the full House floor, and then we'll likely see a vote before December 20th. So that's where we are in terms of the timeline. And it feels like, though, Terry, I mean, if you're the White House right now, as Catherine pointed out, they've said no to this first deadline for this Wednesday first hearing by Nadler. We're waiting on a Friday deadline. It's probably going to follow the same course of action. There just seems to be biding their time until this gets to the Senate. Well, they've given up certainly stopping an impeachment in the House of Representatives. But beyond that, they're making a case to the American people that they don't need this committee. It's basically, you got nothing, uh, to use a, a line from an old gangster movie that you almost hear President Trump use from time to time. I think the the sense that they have is that they've already endured the worst that the Democrats have come up with, which was the testimony, some people found it compelling, some not, of civil servants, of diplomats and ambassadors describing this shadow foreign policy for the president's personal political interest. And that, the Democrats think, is sufficient. What they don't have and don't seem to be willing to wait for 
are the real insiders as witnesses. John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor, Mick Mulvaney, the Chief of Staff, maybe Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who would have eyewitness firsthand accounts of what the president said, ordered, and did. Uh, right now, they're not willing to testify, waiting on the courts, or refusing altogether. So this is the impeachment they've got. Uh, and I don't think the president is scared of it. And, and it's interesting, too, you know, the three of us have actually been focused on John Bolton along with most of the world here because Bolton's in a weird place right now because he was not subpoenaed. He was just requested to appear. He declined that offer. Um, and his deputy, his former deputy, Charlie Kupperman, was the one that actually brought a lawsuit based on his subpoena. But then because the Democrats saw that Bolton kind of wanted to jump onto that lawsuit, they withdrew Kupperman's subpoena. That lawsuit, though, Catherine, is still it's out there, but it's really don't got a lot of teeth left. Yeah, I'm not really so sure what exactly they gained from this lawsuit. They want the they, I guess their next uh, hearing date is the 10th of December. They want the court to rule uh, on whether Kupperman uh, needs to be forced to uh, testify uh, before Congress. But but you're right in terms of the timeline. And Terry was mentioning the courts here. It's just Democrats aren't willing to wait for this to play out. They didn't want Bolton uh, to join that lawsuit for that reason. Bolton's a political animal. Did he really want to testify? You and I have been talking to sources close to Bolton that at first it seemed like he wanted to come up. But then uh, and the, talk Twitter to the, committee. But, and then the Twitter, Twitter thing. What was the Twitter thing last week? I didn't understand that for the life of me. He says, "Okay, I want have something to say. I want to get out there." Then it was the Twitter account was locked. What was that? I honestly think that that was a bit of a distraction in a sense. And I know that frustrated both uh, me and you who thought it might be something about him uh, wanting to speak out. I don't really know what that was. but and, And Terry might have a good answer for this. What I've been fascinated about is in the Senate trial. Could Roberts, for example, compel some of these witnesses to testify? Could we possibly see, you know, a Bolton or Mulvaney or or how will that work? Is that in terms of strategy here, legal strategy from the Democrats in the House? Are they saying, you know, we don't want to hold this up, but we could hear from them in the Senate trial? Yeah, I don't think it would be Chief Justice Roberts presiding over an impeachment trial. The the history in the two previous trials, Clinton's and Andrew Johnson's, is the, the Chief Justice's uh, Sam and Chase and William Rehnquist were basically pieces of furniture, right? I mean, they really didn't want to to get into the political fight that an impeachment at bottom really is. And they let the Senate and the senators make those decisions. You know, should there be a motion to dismiss? Should we compel certain witnesses? The, the Congress does have an inherent power of contempt. I don't think you're going to see the chief justice do that. Let's ask you this question, though. Let's say I'm the White House. And let's say, for some reason, I think John Bolton could say something that could help the president's case. Could I, as the White House lawyers, president's lawyers representing him in this Senate trial, call John Bolton to testify if I wanted to? Absolutely. It would be up to the people who are determining the rules of procedure and evidence in the Senate. And that's the Senate. And that's the Senate majority. And that's Mitch McConnell and the Republicans. So whatever the White House wants in that trial, it's likely to get. I don't think I don't think uh, Roberts plays much of a role at all. But the Democrats were looking for the federal courts uh, to weigh in on the power of the House subpoena to get John Bolton's testimony and and perhaps that of, of others. And they aren't willing to wait on the courts playing it out. So I think their case comes to the, to the House of Representatives, at first the Judiciary Committee and then beyond that to the Senate, a little weaker than they would have wanted to because they don't have that 
insider firsthand information. But what's surprising to me about that, I take your point, they didn't want to wait for the process to play out, but let's look at what happened with the Don McGahn case, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that took a bit of time, in all fairness, but they got what they wanted, Terry. They did get a federal court to say, uh, yeah, you have to comply with the congressional request. And they have an even stronger case in the impeachment area because the, you could make the solid argument that the House's uh, need for evidence is nowhere greater than when it is convened as an impeachment uh, inquiry, which now it officially is. So they have a good shot in the courts. The president would take it all the way to the Supreme Court, and they're afraid of that timeline, and they don't really want to do it. And so, and the Judiciary Committee, they're going to end up with constitutional lawyers who I don't think are going to be persuasive to many people whose minds aren't already made up. And, and impeachment in general, like other parts of the Constitution, belongs less to the law professors than it does to the people. We aren't going to wait for some constitutional law professor to tell us what we think is impeachable and isn't. We all know that in our individual civic minds. Just going back to the the witnesses in the in the Senate trial, and I know that Mitch McConnell and Schumer still need to get together and hash this out about how this is going to look. But I had heard, you know, through the grapevine from some Republicans on the Hill who said, you know, actually, maybe some of these, you know, the Pompeos and the Boltons of the world, like maybe they'll be called in the Senate trial. And then, of course, the president tweets like he'd love for them to come up, but he doesn't want them to come up in the House impeachment inquiry, but the Senate, which could be more friendly. Now, I don't know what type of legal strategy that is or if that just opens up another whole can of worms for them. I think it does. But he's indicated a little bit of that on Twitter. So So with this week, Terry, the fact that we're switching gears, we're heading to Jerry Nadler's court. The last time he held a hearing uh, didn't go too well, which is why I think Adam Schiff was kind of put in charge of this thing in the first place. But what are you looking for? What's the thing that you need to see this week for either the Democrats or the Republicans to move this ball in some way? Well, I'm curious. You're right. The Judiciary Committee in general uh, is a place where the the more uh, passionate advocates on both in both parties tend to take a seat on that committee to push their agenda. So from the Democrats, I'm, I'm looking, how broadly do they want to frame this impeachment? Do they want to just stick with that call to the president of Ukraine? Or are they going to bring in obstruction of justice, the Mueller in, in, in investigation? Are they going to find other aspects of the Ukrainian uh, incident that they think are impeachable? Is it going to be bribery? I'm going to see how broadly they want, how how much of the anger and how much of the, the frustration and, and the contempt that so many Democrats have for this president and presidency, how much of that gets into the impeachment itself, which they're going to draft and vote on? Or is it tight? Is it tightly focused? That in this instance, we've got them. He abused his power. He used the power of the presidency to try to advance his own personal political interests by getting a foreign government to go after his rival. And that's the cleanest version. But I don't know if the Democrats can help themselves. We'll have to wait and see, Terry Moran. Thank you. When we come back on the investigation, talking about that process, we've got a lot of things that are going to happen this week. We've got somebody with us that knows a thing or two about the process on Capitol Hill. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the investigation. I'm John Santucci, joined by my colleague Catherine Falders here in Washington. As we said, a busy week set to get started here in D.C. as the impeachment inquiry for President Trump enters a new phase. Uh, On Sunday, Martha Raddatz actually spoke with Val Demings. Uh, She is a congresswoman from Florida, unique because she's one of the few that actually has sat in on the House Intel Committee hearings. And now as a member of also the House Judiciary hearings, she gets to sit in on this week. And Martha asked her about what the vote could be this week, where this thing moves forward. Take a listen to that exchange. Let's go back to that phone call. Uh, Given the president was ultimately unsuccessful in the quid pro quo, as Republicans argued, the Ukrainians never opposed the investigation, the aid ultimately flowed, and Trump met with Zelensky at the UN. Should Democrats consider a censure instead of the drastic step of impeachment? Well, you know, you're going to make me go back to my law enforcement experience. Um, I had an opportunity in 27 years to deal with a lot of uh, people who attempted to rob a bank, attempted to burglarize a a house, attempted to carjack an individual. Uh, We didn't say, well, since you weren't successful, we caught you, you weren't successful, so just let's just let you go and forget it. No, we have an obligation given to us by the Constitution. I know it's one that the American people want us to uphold. And we're going to do the work before us. The fact that the president got caught, the fact that the president got caught in the act does not relieve him of being held accountable for the wrongdoing that he has engaged. Democrat Val Deming speaking to Martha Raddatz Sunday on this week. Okay, so going into this week, everything we have going on, God help us, we have another report coming out if we haven't had enough of those already (laughs) in the three years of the Trump presidency. So let's break it down, one of our experts. Joining us right now, ABC News contributor and former acting undersecretary for the Department of Homeland Security and, and this role may be a little more important, but all of his roles are important, former senior investigator for the House Judiciary Committee, Mr. John Cohen. John, thank you for joining us. Appreciate you coming in after a holiday. So we, as we've been saying 110 times, and I'll say it another one, busy week process. Let's start first, John, with the fact that as Catherine reported, we know that there's another report coming from the House Intelligence Committee. We know that members are going to view that in the skiff and then vote to release that later today. Walk us through how that report actually gets pieced together after all of the public hearings we saw over the last couple weeks. Yeah, so the staff from the House Intelligence Committee will take the information that came from the depositions that were held uh, in the SCIF. They'll take the testimony that was provided uh, in the public hearings. They'll also take any other information that they've pulled together. It could include parts of the Mueller investigation. It could include other document uh, documentary evidence that they've acquired through the course of this investigation and through other House oversight or other oversight uh, activities. They'll package them together. Uh, and that will be the information that goes to the House Judiciary Committee for the drafting of articles of impeachment. So it is possible that there will be things in this report that we as the general public perhaps have not heard of that from the public hearings over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's absolutely possible and highly likely because there are documents that were provided to the Intelligence Committee. There was information that was provided uh, that was acquired through the Mueller investigation, which they may have access to. Uh, and there was information in depositions um, from witnesses who did not testify publicly. So th- there's likely going to be information that we have not seen yet that will be incorporated into this report. And, and I know this is a little bit of crystal ball playing with you, but is it possible that there could be classified information included in the report that 
if it was released publicly. I know a lot of people got frustrated with some of the redactions that were in Robert Mueller's report. Is that possible for this report that would come out of the House Intel Committee? Yeah, well, you said something interesting at the beginning of our conversation. You said members will be going to the SCIF to, to view the report. You view, you go to a SCIF to view information that's classified typically. So maybe they're trying to, to control and prevent aspects of this report from leaking out. Uh, but we could also assume that because they're in a SCIF, because they're looking at it in a SCIF, that there may be some classified information contained. This process hasn't necessarily been, you know, as typical as other processes. Like it's originated, obviously, the impeachment inquiry in the House Intelligence Committee, not judiciary. Of course, it will be referred to judiciary. Is Intel likely to? And again, this is a making a prediction, but are they likely to write in their report specifics like we recommend X article of impeachment or X crime, or is it likely to be broader and then uh, given to judiciary to make that determination? I mean, it could be either. I mean, while we have a general outline of protocols or procedures on how the, uh, the, the impeachment process works, um, you know, t- to some degree, we're in uncharted territory. So we may see something very direct from House Intelligence uh, that includes language for uh, potential articles of impeachment, or it may simply be the statement of facts. I mean, the investigators in this process need to do a couple things, um, and and the and the House Democrats need to do a couple things. One, they need to lay out a fact pattern that is. Um, you know, that, that meets the standard for articles of impeachment. Um, but they also need to make a second argument, which won't be necessarily a part of the articles of impeachment, but will influence the political environment, which is a statement on the fitness of office, uh, the fitness of the president to serve in that position. Because remember, impeachment is not just a way to, in a sense, prosecute a sitting president for misdeeds, but it's also a way the founders put into place to remove somebody who was unsuited to be in that office. And, and, you know, the other thing that you've mentioned as far as what people took away from those hearings, um, obviously, this has been the Democrats leading the charge, the majority in the House. Um, Republicans, though, there have been times where where they've come out and actually questioned um, the conduct of the president. Um, One of those from over the weekend was actually Republican Tom McClintock. He was on with Martha Raddatz Sunday um, and talked about uh, this report from the New York Times um, over the weekend. Take a listen to that. The New York Times also reported this week that the president knew about the whistleblower complaint in August before he released the military aid in early September, which would mean when Trump spoke to Gordon Sondland in September, he was well aware of what was going on. So there, when he said there was no quid pro quo, pro quo, he would have to have been aware of that complaint. What's your response to that? Well, the, the, the implication is that this is an admission of guilt because the president found out about the whistleblower complaint and then immediately released the aid. That's not what happened. Uh, 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 several weeks went by before that aid was released. Now, remember, under our Constitution, the president has sole authority to But he specifically mentioned affairs. there was no quid He's, pro quo to Sondland exactly in that, right. in that exactly phone right. call. And there, Could he and, be covering his tracks? And, And among all of the testimony of the hand-picked witnesses that the Democrats have heard for two weeks in public hearings, not one, not one was uh, told that there was a quid pro quo. Uh, The the, uh, uh, only conclusions that they came to were supposition and impressions they got reading the New York Times. But remember, the president conducts our foreign policy. He's commanded to take care that the laws be faithfully enforced. Uh, And 
uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, which authorized aid to Ukraine in the first place, requires that the administration determine that that country is taking steps to combat corruption before he releases the aid. As I re read his conversation with uh, Zelensky, that's exactly what he was doing. When, when you defend the president and, and think about these hearings, is there anything in your mind that the president did involving Ukraine that is wrong or that concerns you in any way? Well, he didn't use the delicate language of diplomacy in that conversation. That's true. Uh, he also doesn't use the smarmy talk of politicians. Uh, what you hear from Donald J. Trump is the blunt talk of a Manhattan businessman. He says what he means. He means what he says. Of, uh, that's the only thing that's remarkable about that, co that conversation. But he was entirely within his constitutional authority and was following the statute that Congress adopted uh, in granting aid to the Ukraine. Republican Tom McClintock speaking to Martha Raddatz this past weekend. Let's talk about some of the information we learned from the hearings over the last couple of weeks, because I had a hearing that I thought would be the most interesting or uh, a testimony that would be the most interesting. Um, somebody else showed up and blew me out of the water. Who was your most surprising person that we learned from over the two and a half weeks of testimony? I don't think there was one person that was surprising. What was surprising to me, and arguably, I probably listened to these hearings from a different place than many. Um, a lot of people were listening to the hearings about within the context of the impeachment process and, and the politics surrounding impeachment. You know, I'm somebody who spent over three decades in national security and law enforcement. Um, so I listened to the witnesses. Uh, from the perspective of somebody who has worked at the federal government at the highest levels on national security issues. And what I heard was that uh, was a sounding of the alarm by career uh, and senior uh, State Department, military, uh, intelligence community uh, uh, experienced people saying that the national security system that has protected this country for decades is broken. I mean, look at Ukraine specifically, right? The president wasn't um, taking in information from experts in the National Security Council or the State Department or the intelligence community. He was receiving his information from Rudy Giuliani, who was being fed a combination of Russian disinformation, uh, inaccurate information, and debunked conspiracy theories from, in part, corrupt Ukrainian officials. And he was feeding that information to the president of the United States, who wasn't just forming opinions, but making actual decisions. He removed an ambassador from post. He provided provided a debunked conspiracy theory to a head of state asking that head of state to take action on that debunked conspiracy theory. Uh, he may have even withheld military aid to the Ukraine based on this inaccurate uh, information that he was receiving. So the system that the president in the past has relied on to make informed decisions that could have a direct impact on the national security of the United States does not seem to be working. And instead, you have other individuals and even potentially adversarial nations influencing the decisions being made to the president by the president. That's what really disturbs me as somebody who has spent the overwhelming majority of his career uh, working to protect this country. You know, Catherine, though, I'm curious, when you're up on the Hill and you're talking to lawmakers about um, about what they took away from the hearings, I mean, what, what do you think stood out to them? I mean, I'm, and the person I was mentoring, for me personally, that I found interesting, I look at it differently than you, obviously, John, but um, I was surprised by Fiona Hill, um, only because, uh, you know, what I had been hearing from the Trump orbit 
um, is that it was a person that uh, uh, many felt, uh, you know, uh, befriended them. Uh, they had brought her back. Uh, she was a political appointee this time around, but she had been a longtime uh, career service official under the Obama administration and uh, Bush 43 administration. Um, but but I'm curious, what were the takeaways that you heard from members as uh, over the last couple of days? Well, a couple of things. I think over the course of the closed door depositions and the public hearings, especially uh, from Republicans, you saw a shift in message, in a sense, uh, from when the transcripts of the depositions were coming out to the public hearings. Uh, you heard in the beginning, the president did nothing wrong. This is a hoax. You still heard the word hoax. But uh, then the narrative, as they continued to hear from uh, these career folks, was, okay, maybe it was inappropriate uh but not impeachable and, and surely not illegal. Um, so uh, Republicans did uh, shift their tone there as they kept uh, hearing from these credible witnesses who, uh, some of which, a lot of which had uh, firsthand knowledge of, of what was described in that now uh, infamous phone call between the president and Zelensky in, in terms of witnesses. And uh, John, obviously, looking at this through a different lens, I think Obviously, we thought the um, EU ambassador Gordon Sondland would be uh, a big one and perhaps uh, the most worry for the White House. It turned out differently uh, from the White House perspective, at least by the end of his testimony. But I think what was so striking, and it goes back to what John was touching on, was Sondland revealed the degree to which officials in the administration had knowledge of this from uh, Pompeo to Mulvaney. He came with emails that he was on showing uh, that these uh, people who are not cooperating, not providing documents, say, you know, they aren't really aware of any of these back channels. Well, actually, they were. And Fiona Hill said uh, in her testimony that she was uh, originally furious with Gordon Sondland for bringing up these investigations into the Bidens in front of the Ukrainians. But then said, you know, uh, actually, I figured out what was going on here. There were various different channels. Sunlun was just doing what he was told by the president's personal attorney at the direction of the president. And what she said in that testimony was, I came to realize that he was actually Sunlun running a domestic political errand while we were all trying to conduct foreign policy through the right channels. Yeah, I thought Fiona Hill was an incredibly powerful um, witness. But what's really interesting is that the whole issue with Rudy Giuliani, right? I mean, I've been around government for a long time, and there's always people who come in and try to tell the bureaucracy, hey, I'm close to the president. Uh, this is what the president wants. And typically, unless a very clear message is sent by that political figure that this person is operating on my behalf, mm -hmm. the bureaucracy will block them out. That's mm -hmm. what they do. I mean, we've seen it for decades. I personally have experienced. I was the guy once who a senior elected official brought in to sort of bring about change. But unless the bureaucracy knows, and in this case knows that Rudy Giuliani was, had the support of the president, there is no way he would have been able to have the influence uh, uh, and be a part of the process that all the witnesses described. So, so in, a part in, of. in theory, someone, I mean, I don't think it was just Rudy himself, someone had to telegraph that to others that, hey, this is coming directly from POTUS. We need to make sure this gets done. 
Absolutely. Rudy himself would not have been able to make that case to the, the charge affair in the Ukraine uh, and, uh, and other National Security Council uh, officials. And in fact, uh, what typically would have happened in government, at least when I was there, is you would have someone like Rudy out there getting involved in things that were big priorities from a national security perspective. And the word would filter up to the national security advisor who would say, hey, cut that out. That, that we're done with this. But that didn't happen in this case. And, and that tells me that somebody said, no, Rudy is acting on behalf of the president. See, the one that I, I just can't figure out in all of this that I feel like there's more questions about than anything else, what was Mike Pompeo doing throughout all of this? I, I, that, that's one. I mean, Catherine, we, we know that he's eyeing a Senate run potentially to leave his post um, at Secretary of State. But the, the, the thing that also is the amount of times uh, the, the individuals testifying brought up S uh, during their testimonies, referring to the secretary, that S was consulted, S was uh, involved, S had approved, S knew the developments. Uh, it, it's still striking to think that we have not really seen Mike Pompeo uh, enter center stage in this whole thing, well, if you don't will. don't forget that the State Department IG turned over a package right. front that had gone from Rudy Giuliani via the White House to Mike Pompeo. And it included the interviews with some of these corrupt Ukrainian officials uh, and timelines and the email exchanges uh, between the people inside the State Department. So that went to the front office of the State Department. And I actually think it, that with that packet of the disinformation with some of the Giuliani stuff, uh, I actually think that got to the legal advisor at the State Department by accident. Uh, and mm. then he referred it over to the IG who said, oh, I have all this information. I, it, given the time, uh, I think I should brief Congress on this, but I think Pompeo... That was that whole urgent, immediate briefing thing? Exactly. The pages and pages of of documents, which John mentions that at the end of that uh, packet, uh, there were emails right with with senior people at the State Department. How could they not have known about this? Including a counselor to the secretary. Exactly. Someone who worked in the front office of the State Department. Someone who worked in the front office, and I do think it's striking. I actually think uh, I was talking to some sources during Sondland's testimony, uh, which... In a, in a backwards way, I think some White House sources actually thought that Sondland's testimony uh, was really good for them because it kind of took the narrative out of the White House and into agencies like the State Department saying, actually, they have more questions to answer because their advisors and their senior aides were on these emails and and they were aware of what was going on. So I actually think all in all, the, the two people, maybe three people, I would say, have the most questions still to answer and we won't hear from them likely are uh, the Secretary of State, um, of course, Mick Mulvaney and, and John, John Bolton. Bolton. Yeah. And, and all three of them right now do not like we're going to see them in any meaningful way. So, John, you know, you mentioned a couple of times just the way you look at things a little differently than we in the media, obviously someone in the general public would. This report that's going to come this week is going to help turn the page into where this is going to go next. So what would you be looking for in this report that main, perhaps the normal eye would not catch? A couple of things. One, the... the The Democrats are going to have to make a clear case that in the way that the uh, Rudy Giuliani and others were 
behaving at the bequest of the president. And in that which the president said to Zelensky in that phone call, that this wasn't a nuanced issue. This wasn't the president exercising his authority to, uh, you know, as it relates to foreign policy in the best interests of the country. They're going to have to make a very clear case that what the president did in that phone call, what he said in that phone call, and what was going on in the months preceding that phone call was an orchestrated effort to personally benefit the president of the United States and that the president was advancing his own personal interests as opposed to the national interests. If they don't make that case clearly and in a way that the American people understand, um, then you know we're, we're, this isn't going to come out of the political process whatsoever. And, and, and just another point on Giuliani. I think they're going to use the president and Giuliani's own words against him, right? I mean, you have Giuliani saying that, you know, I keep the president updated on X related to Ukraine and the president saying similar uh, stuff too. And, and I think it begs the question, and, and again, talking about the shifting narratives from Republicans, one thing that I uh, really observed from talking to them was the shifting narrative on Giuliani. Uh, they kind of, towards the end of this, uh, started throwing Giuliani under the bus a little bit. Uh, the, how is the president's personal attorney uh, not keeping him updated on these matters? It just doesn't seem likely. Now, you'd ask Republicans and they say, oh, well, Giuliani operates on his own. Well, it doesn't seem like this case here, given that Gordon Sunland, who was tasked uh, with, you know, this back channel to Ukraine, in a sense, said that he believed that Giuliani spoke for the president. We'll wait and see if we learn something new in this upcoming report. Thank you both, John Cohen. Appreciate it as always. For Catherine Folders, I'm John Santucci. Thanks so much for listening to the investigation. Make sure to hit subscribe and leave us a rating. Thanks to our producers, Trevor Hastings, Caitlin Fulmer, and Emily Ruchowski. We will catch you next time on The Investigation.